Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Judith Peppard. As most people listening will know, the expansion of renewable technologies has generated the need for copper and rare minerals. And fossil fuel companies are eager to take up the opportunities and acquire some green credentials in the process. Many are moving into poor countries, where they are welcomed by governments desperate to service major international debt, and where the regulations can be, well, flexible. Today on Earth Matters, we take a look at mining in Ecuador a country rich in biodiversity and tradition, where the government is giving out mining concessions without consultation with traditional owners and communities, a move being resisted by First Peoples, farmers and environmentalists. My guest on Earth Matters today is Liz Downs. She's the coordinator of the Ecuador Endangered Campaign at the Rainforest Information Centre a grassroots volunteer-based, not-for-profit organization dedicated to the protection of the Earth's remaining rainforests. Liz is also a member of the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group. Last year, she spent two months in Ecuador, speaking with communities about the impact of mining on their land and their way of life, and hearing their concerns for the future. I began by asking Liz Downs to give me some background to this rush of mining companies into Ecuador. What's happening at the moment is a massive expansion of mining. Some of it is definitely for minerals such as copper and lithium, nickel, to create the technologies that are needed for decarbonisation globally. What's actually driving this mining burn is more sort of market forces because as you know, these minerals have become more valuable, the prices have gone up. And so all the mining companies are like, yay, you know, pay dirt. So they're going out to all these different countries and particularly countries that are in developing world to dig up these minerals. Australian mining companies are a big part of this. So this is an international phenomenon. This is an international phenomenon in which Australia is playing a really big part. And what's attracting mining companies particularly to Ecuador? Ecuador is part of what's known as the Andean Copper Belt. That includes Chile, Peru, Ecuador and Colombia. There's a lot of copper up until now, Australia in particular, but other, other countries have, well, have been getting enormous amounts of copper out of Chile, in particular the Atacama Desert. As the copper boom is increasing to make everything from um, generators for wind turbines through to the electrical infrastructure needed for electric vehicles and public transport, there's a search for other sources of copper. I and mean, Ecuador is, unlike Peru, largely unexplored, largely undeveloped with mining infrastructure. So we've got a situation now where their government is really, really wanting to push the mining. 
to get them out of the huge international debt. Mining companies are just flooding in to explore for copper that they will hopefully be able to um, speculate on and produce projects. Tell me what proportion of the mining companies in Ecuador are Australian. Almost exactly a third of the current mining and exploration investment in Ecuador at the moment is Australian companies, which includes BHP, Fortescue Metals Group, which is Twiggy Forest's mining company, a subsidiary of Hancock Prospecting, owned by Gina Reinhardt, Newcrest and quite a few others in there. Sounds like some older and some newer companies. Got a, and a particularly eager junior called Soul Gold has got about 79 exploration concessions. Now, it's a bit of a feeding frenzy because you know everyone's just like, wow, we don't know how much copper, but it's not just copper. I mean, what they're actually doing is they're greenwashing on the copper. They're saying, we're going to dig copper out because we want to save the climate. But what they're also mining is gold, which is much more valuable. They're taking advantage of the move to green technologies. There's nothing green about the methods they're using. Ecuador is estimated currently by scientists to be home to around 13% of all the world's known species. And that's the known species. So if you count all the ones that haven't even been discovered by science, and we're talking about plants, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, it's actually per hectare considered to be the most biodiverse country in the world. We had a major international biodiversity conference in December last year. And certainly countries like Ecuador were calling for some investment to help them because um, they're struggling. In Ecuador, they've got about a $20 billion debt to China and another fairly large debt to the International Monetary Fund at the moment. They used to rely on oil, but since oil prices crashed globally in 2013, they realised they could no longer do that. So they've turned very rapidly to selling off nearly a third of the country's landmass to mining in direct conflict with their own constitution, which actually values the biodiversity. It's the only constitution in the world to have the rights of nature, which is pretty amazing. It's, It's giving nature actual intrinsic rights that are not just related to nature's usefulness for humanity. That's really exciting. So that they value in their constitution nature itself. But this is obviously a direct conflict with this push to mine the hell out of two million hectares of protected forest, protected ecosystems and also indigenous lands. Yeah, and this is where the international situation is of interest because one of the big things at the Biodiversity Conference was to have some investment and and funding so that would help to protect countries like this from having to sell off assets to mining companies. One of the things that Ecuador has, the reason why it's so biodiverse is because it's got a huge amount of endemism where one species is only found in that one single place. So it might be a frog that's only found in a particular spring or an orchid that's only pollinated by a particular bee. Lots of endangered species also in Ecuador. And we've seen this in our campaign that, for example, the BHP mining camp a few years ago was thought to be on the only habitat for a particular species of glass frog and that glass frog is thought to have been wiped out. I just want to come back now to the Australian mining concessions. Where are they located? In what parts of Ecuador? Really most of Ecuador and it depends on the company. The company that's got the most concessions which is Sol Gold, a Brisbane-based 
company. It's actually on the London Stock Exchange, but it is an Australian company. They have sessions in about nine different provinces, some that are in the Amazon rainforest, in the indigenous Shuar territory. Shuar territory is very largely concession to mining, and it's a huge area of rainforest. The highlands and cloud forest regions where, you know, you've got the Andes basically provides the water for the Amazon basin also for Pacific Coast and lots of communities. And these mines are dotted from 3,000 metres above sea level through the cloud forests, all those river systems. Yeah, we've got Soul Gold, Twiggy Forests has concessions in those areas, the Shuar Territory in the Highlands, BHP up in the northwest, Hancock Prospecting, or Hanreen, as the company's called, is in the far northwest. Well, very familiar names here in Australia, and they're all over Ecuador. I asked Liz Downs about her trip to Ecuador late last year and what she found and what she heard from people she spoke with. I was travelling on behalf of the Rainforest Information Centre and the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group. We supported a highly successful legal case, which was won in 2021 where a forest called Los Cedros was permanently protected from mining, where that, the um, constitutional court, which is like the high court, actually declared the reserve, this cloud forest, off limits to mining due to the rights of nature. So that goes back to the Constitution. Yeah, it goes back to the Constitution. That was a huge win because the Rainforest Information Centre helped establish that reserve back in the 80s. So we were a really big part in that international campaign. I'm interested that you helped establish it in the 1980s. Obviously, you're in there for the long haul, I and mean, I expect that's pretty important. Yeah, that's right. We're all about working with local people to support its grassroots in their endeavours. Based on the Los Cedros campaign, we were looking at supporting a couple of other communities with their legal cases based on the Los Cedros precedent. Though Los Cedros set a precedent that, well, if we can get a case up to the High Court, we even use that constitutional rights of nature, but the rights of communities to a clean and healthy environment is enshrined in the Constitution. And also the rights of communities to have adequate consultation, which they have not had with any of this mining. These mining concessions have been handed out with no consultation whatsoever of any of their communities in Ecuador. Back to why I was there, we were checking in with Los Cedros. I was also just visiting quite a few different communities impacted by Australian mining companies where there's absolutely no, and I mean zero information. I mean, there's no other NGOs in there. It pretty much was me walking into some of these places and connecting with the local groups, just saying, well, what's happening here? What impacts are you having from their explorations? And communities were coming out and saying, we've already had water contamination. We've already had aggressive socialisation applied to us by these companies. The mining companies. The mining companies. What do you mean by aggressive socialisation? And it's the art of going into a community and making them want your mine. Like it's taught in university, like that you go in, you find the people in the community who would be most likely to be pro your project. And then you start offering jobs and offering, what, what do you need? Like, oh, do you need a school? We can build you a school. And so communities have seen that happening. I'm wondering, how did it feel for you being in those places where Australian miners are operating? For me, it's just very humbling. I mean, these are people who are agriculturalists. There is heaps of food, like seriously good food you can grow in Ecuador. So these are people who have been farming sometimes for hundreds of years, um, since pre-Incan times talking about people who have Indigenous roots that go back a couple of thousand years in some cases. They're very, very proud of their 
land, also water is sacred. Water is everything. Water is life. These are people who understand how important the land is. What did people tell you about their concerns for the mining? Like what kinds of things are they experiencing? There's land issues and there's human rights issues and they're kind of related. So people have been seeing water getting contaminated because even with rock sampling when company goes in, Really early exploration, you'll hear them say that to shareholders in, in AGMs, you know, like, you know, as if we're not doing any harm. We don't even need an environmental licence for early exploration, which is true in Ecuador. You don't need an environmental licence. You just need a, a paper tick. But the water starts running yellow and then it starts smelling funny and coming out of people's taps funny. And they're like, what's going on? And it's the rock sampling. We're seeing roads being widened and then impacts of socialisation and also the impacts of militarisation and criminalisation. People who protest being criminalised. And I did recently read Human Rights Watch report. It was their annual report. And I checked out Ecuador and they particularly highlighted how bad the prisons were. Terrifying, yeah. I mean, one of my friends said to me when I was over there, He'd rather die than go into one of the prisons. And because of his particular racial background, he said, I'd I'd be killed in a prison. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, having to tread that balance between keeping a a low profile. And if we want testimonials, they have to be not named. Some people can only give audio-only testimonies because everybody in Ecuador has an identification number. It's just really tricky. What actions have communities taken to stop the mining? direct action, you know, people have blockaded roads. There's a very successful campaign uh, keeping BHP out of an area of the northwest of the country at the moment, simply through blockading, but also they got their local government to declare a legal ordinance, declare that area a mining-free zone. That tactic has been very, very successful in that area. Another tactic is political, so getting um, public referendums happening to say, you know, the people say no to mining and that's using the constitution as a vehicle. Mixed success because the history of corruption is, is incredibly intense. A lot of referendums just get thrown out for technicalities. This has been a few national strikes of which mining was a major issue. Also legal cases, so getting cases up as high as possible in the court system. What's been the most successful so far among the strategies? You mentioned the one against PHP was successful. What else seems to be working there? so early in the day because this mining rollout is only just beginning, like the storm is only just beginning. The new national mining plan was supposed to be ready by now, but people are pushing the government to try and and stall it until certain things are in place to protect water and protect water sovereignty, food sovereignty and Indigenous sovereignty. And this is a very, very complicated process. I mentioned Los Cedros, which was a legal case that got up to the the High Court. Uh, That obviously was very successful and it was a kind of an international precedent as well. The difficulty with that was that after Los Cedros, the, the government got a bit freaked out and so did the investors. And the investors put pressure on the government because share prices just plummeted after Los Cedros. So like, we've actually had a case where a concession wasn't annulled, but the environmental licence was annulled. So, yeah, they put pressure on the government and the government said, right, well, we'll have to do something. So the constitutional court was reshuffled. I mean, the membership on the, yeah, on the, the judges. court. A little bit more pro-mining. Making the membership of the constitutional court more pro-mining. And I'm speaking with Liz Downs from the Ecuador Endangered Campaign at the Rainforest Information Centre. 
Liz has been telling us about the people she met and what she learned during her two-month study tour in Ecuador late last year. You're on Earth Matters, produced at 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I asked Liz Downs about the practices of Australian mining companies in Ecuador, whether it varied across companies with regard to treatment of people and the land. The public companies that are listed on the stock exchange really have to be more careful. And that's because the climate globally of investment in mining is very much going heavily towards social responsibility now. And you just can't get good investment if you can't prove that you're being socially and environmentally responsible. So bigger companies particularly who have more at stake, because unfortunately there's a difference between actually trying to do better and just greenwashing and telling your shareholders that you're doing better. If a person is a shareholder, how would they find out what's going on? There's varying degrees of transparency. Again, if you're a larger company, it's probably more in their interest to be more transparent. You know, it's tricky because I've been in a couple of AGMs where you you get up and you ask a question and... It looks really good to the shareholders that there's 20 people asking questions, but you've only got two minutes to ask your question. And you can see them sweat when you're asking the question. They have to prove themselves because shareholders actually do care. Looking at the charter of some of the larger companies, they actually say they won't mine in areas where there are endangered species. Doesn't that just write most of Ecuador off? Well, this is the thing. So they're still trying to mine there, but the charter says they don't, and then they have to convince their shareholders that they're not. Well, we just have to keep naming it up. We have to say, look... You just stuffed up the territory of this frog, seriously. And and unless there's people on the ground who are witnessing these things, this is where I think the international involvement's important. Like, we're a really tiny organisation. You know, people in Ecuador say to us, well, you know, you're kind of our voice. You've got to you talk to your government. Because how, how else would anyone know that this small village has had these problems with their water? If you were going to report to the Australian government on that... Who would you go to and uh, would you get much sympathy? These things go on in Australia as well. At the moment, we we only have one mechanism, which is the OECD contact point. And that's just for companies that are listed. So there's no clear mechanism. There's no clear mechanism. And and Mm -hmm. our government is very, very pro-mining. I mean, I've just done a search report for one of the organisations that we're aligned with. We've got networks. That's about as far as it goes. We've got networks of organisations that are looking at this. None of us have any funds to speak of. The government at the moment is really wanting to frame Australia as a clean energy producer, Australian government, and that means expansion of mining both domestically and overseas, it means that this has to be very carefully framed to the public. I mean, it's actually about defence rather than climate change. <laughs> but, you know, if you frame it to the public and the climate movement, that it's all about saving us from climate change. But this means, I mean, this expansion is, is enormous. If you want to have any kind of voice that doesn't fit with that narrative of got to get clean energy, we've got to provide the raw materials, never mind that providing those raw materials is also going to make an awful lot of money for both the companies and Australia. Sounds like a return to the colonial process in a way. It's it's a continuation of colonisation, but being done through the mining companies and big business. Does the Ecuador government support its citizens who are protesting or does it support the mining companies? It's very much slanted towards the mining companies. One of the attractions I imagine to some of the companies is to go to a country where the government will enforce the compliance of its citizens. Yeah, because there's a thing called investment security. 
and investment security is about making sure that investors get what they signed up for that when they go in to start their programs or so they're not going to have annoying people showing up with placards and chains investment security is all about if we're going to put a million dollars into exploring for this project we want to get that back the government's fear which is a quite a rational fear is that and because it does happen is that companies threaten to sue or do sue if they find that their investment security has been compromised. And this is one of the fallouts from the Los Cedros case. The company went, well, this does, the situation doesn't improve for us, we'll sue. And the Ecuadorian government has been sued before. There was, a, um, not with mining, but with oil. It was sued by Chevron. Chevron actually won, and the Ecuadorian government was ordered to pay, I can't remember exactly, but it might have been about $9 billion. They don't have that sort of money, so... That puts them on the defensive. You can sort of see it. It's like, well, we've got no choice. We've got to protect those investments. And Ecuador doesn't have that kind of money. And here's where the international community could jump in, based on the recommendations of the Kunming-Montreal Agreement, to fund countries to protect biodiversity so they won't be at the mercy of multinational mining companies or other companies for that matter. But it seems slow to happen. And for the moment, it looks like legal cases are offering some hope. Here's Liz Downs again. So we've got two legal cases based on the Los Cedros precedent, the rights of people to clean water and environment, the rights of nature itself, and the rights of people to prior consent, which is a different thing from the free prior and informed consent that applies to Indigenous people under the, the UN Charter. So, so that already exists for Indigenous people? It already exists, but if you're not, not necessarily Indigenous, a lot of people self-identify as Indigenous, but they aren't officially Indigenous under the government. There is a constitutional right that applies to all citizens, which is around prior and informed consent regarding projects that are likely to impact on their environment and their food sovereignty. Things like biodiversity surveys, really important, getting this big evidence out there of what is there before it disappears. We've funded over the past four years number of these surveys, getting, you know, herpetologists out to get... We actually had a, a couple of years ago, a new frog was discovered, which is very exciting. They thought it was a subspecies of another frog, but then they realised it's probably a new frog. And the people chose the name of the frog, named after the resistance against the mining. So it was named the resistance rocket frog. And how is the resistance rocket frog faring at the moment? Unfortunately, it is in a mining concession belonging to mining companies really, really, really wanting to get a copper mine going. So we are actually supporting our partners over there at the moment. There's a major legal case to last-ditch attempt to stop this mine, which is very close to actually being developed. So, yeah, the frog is in very serious danger at the moment. I'm a realist. And I can just see this being a really hard slog. The mining interests are very powerful. You know, like everywhere else, you've got these massive systems of oppression that are based in just mega capitalism and they are playing themselves out, unfortunately, through the technological response to the climate emergency um, and so we're not talking about climate activists here, which are most of us. We're talking about the people that are profiteering from that emergency disaster capitalists, basically. I mean, that's a huge thing. And I feel like what I'm part of in a tiny little way is just being a voice for people who don't have an international voice at this point in Ecuador. 
that's myself and the group of amazing people that I work with, or all volunteers. We're all just quite passionate about this. And we work with others that are working with communities in a similar way in Papua New Guinea, in Peru, in Chile, in African countries, in Philippines. It's this, this solidarity movement that I feel strongly part of for Ecuador in our case. And then there's, you know, within Australia, just teaming up and, 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 and having that voice here too, having that voice to power to say, look, you know, is there a better way of doing this? Yes, and, and coming know? to is there a better way, what could these companies be doing differently? Because it sounds like it's more of the same, mm. like while they're going now for, you know, green energy and so they say, mm. but their actual practices dealing with communities, dealing with the environment, have not changed. If Indigenous peoples are just saying, no, you know, it just can't happen here, Mm. are there other alternatives? Could mining change? There's two things I want to say on that. One is that the route that is being taken is towards, you know, what's so-called responsible mining. Responsible mining certification, international certification programs, which are like, you know, if you can tick all these boxes, of course, the massive problem with that is that companies just immediately greenwash that as well. And you cannot have mining that doesn't destroy. The other thing I want to mention is a concept that's been floated around the International Yes to Life No to Mining Network, which is a network of allied grassroots fronts all over the world who are dealing with mining issues in their lands, their territories. It's called the Red Lines concept. And red lines means simply the lines where we say no. The lines where people have the right to say no to mining based on, and, and there's a number of criteria, you know, Indigenous lands, lands of high biodiversity, basically no-go zones. And I and a lot of my colleagues feel that that's what's missing. You know, the right to say no and just to have these no-go zones where you say, look, no matter how responsible you are, you just can't go into these areas. Liz Downs from the Ecuador Endangered Campaign at the Rainforest Information Centre and a member of the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group. And I'll put links to these organisations on the Earth Matters website and the link to Yes to Life, No to Mining. And following my conversation with Liz Downs, and before going to air, there was good news for activists in the Intag Valley in Ecuador. Their legal fight against the Luramaga Mine, a fight that had been supported by the Ecuador Endangered Campaign and others over the last five years, was successful. The Imbabura Provincial Court determined that the two companies behind the Luramaga Mine had violated communities' constitutional right to consultation, as well as the rights of nature, resulting in the cancelling of their mining licenses. The Los Cedros ruling, mentioned earlier in the show by Liz Downs, was cited as a legal precedent. But what about the Intag-resistance rocket frog? Well, it also had a win, as its habitat has been saved by stopping those mines. We're coming to the end of today's show. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for their work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now. But tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories. And to take us out, here's Annabelle Saraguro from Ecuador. 
with a resistance song he wrote.